Hello and welcome back to another episode of Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am here at Progress Singapore Party headquarters today to speak with Wendy Lowe and Terence Soon, two PSP members. But before that, uh, I am wearing a blue batik shirt, we're sitting behind a grey table and in front of a Progress Singapore Party backdrop. My pronouns are he, him. This is a production of New Narrative and if you enjoy what you hear today, please do join or subscribe to New Narrative. We are funded entirely by members. We really do need your support to keep producing this, uh, all of this, this work. Uh, so go to newnarrative.com slash join to join as a member. It's just 52 US dollars a year. Or go to newnarrative.com slash donate to donate. And now, Subash. Uh, Wendy and Terence, would you like to introduce yourselves and describe yourselves and your pronoun? I'm a she. <laughs> Is that? She, her. Yeah? She, her. Okay. What pronouns do people use? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not used to this format. But uh, yes, Wendy Low, and currently I'm leading the women's wing in Progressing Ball Party. I practice intellectual property and technology law. Um, and yeah, it's it's been a great time since joining Progressing Report Party. I have ran an election in 2020 last year, and that was at Tanjung Paga, and that's probably where I got to work a little more closer with Terence as well. Right. As my uh, fellow for our visually disabled uh, you know, uh, viewers, could you mm -hmm. just describe yourself, like what colour shirt you're wearing so that they can picture you in their heads? Um, I'm wearing a jacket, blue t-shirt, blue pants and shoes because I had to run here because I was running a little bit late. <laughs> yeah. Cool, thank you. Terence? Alright, hello everybody. My name is uh, Terence Soon. Uh, currently the head of Youth Wing and the Progress Singapore Party. And like what Wendy said, I also um, was one of the candidates for the PSP in last year's uh, general elections. And I also ran together with her in uh, Tanjong Tanjong Paga GRC itself. So yeah, we, it was a very interesting experience. Uh, currently I'm wearing a red uh, plaid shirt and uh, sitting to the right of Wendy mm -hmm. and pronounce be he him. Cool, awesome. And you're a SIA pilot, Terence. Yes, correct. But uh, obviously you haven't flown much. And not much at all, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess that gives you a bit more time to work with the Progress Singapore Party and uh, get involved with, with things. Okay, so I guess um, New Narrative is very interested in this, in this current series of political agenda to talk to uh, people, younger people who are trying to make a difference in Singapore. If you've seen our podcast, we've been talking a lot to younger activists uh, and also people who represent minorities, minority activists. So, which is why I'm really pleased to have both of you here. You're definitely, uh, you know, trying to make a big difference uh, for youth and for women, respectively. So, um, the first question I have really is, is how you got into politics. Why, what's your story and what led you to become politically active and, and then join the PSP? Wendy, why don't we start with you? Um, I have never had any personal aspiration to join a political party actually and I think it started with Dr Tan running in the presidential election in 2011. Um, of course I was rooting for him but then history took its course 
And after that, I remember watching a specific YouTube video of him playing the ukulele. Mm, I remember that. And I was very touched by how he conveyed the message that even though he didn't win, but he was there always ready to serve. Right. And so from that moment, I felt in my heart that if there was ever an opportunity to meet Dr. Tan and to serve in any capacity for, for him or any political cause that he was going for, uh, I, I think I would be very honoured. But that thought stayed with me from 2011. I never actively thought about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was after a motorbike accident in 2016. And it was through a mutual friend who knew Dr. Tan and said that he was having an open house to meet um, some younger Singaporeans to share about our concerns. Uh, I think I made an impression by turning up at his house in crutches. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that was the beginning of my political journey. Um, but it sounds like what, what you were, um, you were more sympathetic to Dr. Tan specifically because you supported him in the 2011 elections. You know, do you have like um, a personal history of supporting Dr. Tan or were you more uh, opposition inclined before that or, or, or what? I think there is always that spark in me and more more from supporting fellow activists in the region. So in Malaysia and Hong Kong and I was following the news and the movement actively but never really participating much in Singapore, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so it's with outreaches, NGO volunteering for where I was um, doing NGO work in Hong Kong for a period as well. Right. So it's through all those interactions I got to know a fair bit of ground issues. Right. But I can't say that I was very politically active in Singapore. Right. But when Dr. Tan came up, I think I was very moved by his sense of um, servant leadership. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really the start when I felt that, yeah, that, that was a leader that I was prepared to follow if there was a time to serve. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, Terence, how about you? How did you come to join the PSP? Well, if, if you're looking at the history of um, political awakening, if you want to use that word, it, it actually didn't even start in Singapore. I was kind of following Barack Obama. Right. So, so he's the one who actually made me want to, um, you know, in a way follow how policies work. But in terms of Singapore politics, it, it really is um, down to one person, I would put it, in the 2011 elections, but not the presidential elections the GE and that person is actually Nicosia so mm. yeah she's you know at a point of time I was 21 she was what 24 or something like that so you know someone who's just barely older than you right and running such a good campaign um, you know so eloquent and you just admire the kind of courage that that she has and of course uh, for those listeners who don't know Nicosia is now uh, incidentally, the head of youth wing in the Workers' Party, so um, kind of my counterpart, which is quite weird seeing how, how things actually turned out um, yeah, in this way. But for, for PSP-wise, um, you know, following how Doc from the first PE and then the second time when he tried and he, he became touching block, right, when, when they blocked him, and it, it really kind of stirred something in me to, to, to want to... Uh, in a way not see anything like that happen again in the country where uh, you know the ruling party can just uh, at a whim and fancy just introduce some new legislation for you know I, if you want to put it in for their own benefit so um, that's kind of what spurred me to want to know more about PSP when Dong actually came out with a 
the news conference about it and you know he he said he needed more people to join him and so yeah i just decided then then okay i'm just going to sign up even though i never wanted you know beforehand to join any other party yeah right yeah well that's that's the obvious question though why and if i can be a bit you know untactful and and say if you're inspired by Nicole Sia right uh why not the NSP or i suppose you joined the the PSP before it became known she was working the yes, workers party yes of course yeah okay cuz um wasn't she a volunteer with them at the last election or something like that no um well i i was oh, she's she'd been leafleting for them in the past few years i think that yeah, was it yeah but no one knew whether she was going to run as a candidate right, right. well um Workers Party I I definitely I follow them a lot. I I'm pretty sure I do follow them on all the social media but um as I mentioned I never actually wanted to to join a political party per se but you know when Doc at that news conference he kind of had that call for action mm. and something just it's like a switch was turned on and it's like oh, okay I I better do something and just join. But I I joined with no intention to ever run as a candidate. I really just wanted to come in you know give some moral support physical support in terms of you know giving out flyers and stuff right. like that but nothing really beyond that and uh, yeah I, i have no idea how you know the both, both of us just turned up here like that <laughs> well it's it's a calling and i think the kind of story you're telling i've heard it a lot uh, people who are inspired by how you are able to participate in politics elsewhere right mm-hmm. obama and how he built this very broad coalition and inspired a lot of people actually has an impact globally and i've heard it from a lot of younger activists that the ways in which young people are able to participate in politics in other countries that's something that they aspire to and they're envious of and they like like to do here in our mm-hmm. own country mm-hmm. um and so i guess both of you also were very inspired by uh dr tan um but of course why you know um the psp itself right has to i mean i challenged the party at at my at the talk i gave uh, a few months ago mm. um to articulate something more than just dr tan mm, right course. do you feel that the party is moving towards that direction or has a clear vision that will transcend any one person mm-hmm. and if so what what is it Wendy, maybe you'd like to like to take a start. Um, I I think one thing about being a new party, which is exciting for me, is that uh, it it becomes very open, mm-hmm. uh, especially for young members who are new to politics. Um, we are able to share a lot of our thoughts and ideas and our views, and what. Is the other aspect I like about party is that it also brings with it a wealth of experience from um, ex grassroots leaders and senior leadership from those who had served the incumbent for a number of years, so it kind of marries that balance for me. Um, and what I think PSP is so so different is that it has for the first time brought together a very different mix of Singaporeans from what we used to see. Uh, in terms of alternative right. politics people who are you know more of the academic side or the lawyers yeah. uh, people like myself a little bit but uh, in PSP I actually see a lot of people who are Singaporeans housewife nurses teachers okay. just a broader representation of everyday Singaporeans who are here to step forward to make a difference oh right okay so um whether or not we had the bandwidth to articulate all that I think perhaps more for myself when i'm able to be here from 
almost the inception of the party, mm-hmm. I do see that uh, PSP within itself is really building a microcosm of Singapore, right? And it right. represents all that views and fears and hopes and aspirations and desire for change. But how we can articulate that change to a greater platform, I think, remains an ongoing process. Mm. Um, and because we are trying so, in, in a way, almost too hard to be so democratic and be open to everyone's views, that I think the leadership is actually taking some time to filter out what best represents the party as a whole and to build send that messaging out for fellow Singaporeans. So what would you like the party to stand for? I mean, you're in a position of leadership in the party now. Mm. Is there, if there's one thing that you think uh, the party should stand for and, and um, ideally under your leadership you will be able to stand for, what, what would that be? To me, I mean, if I look back at the namesake, right, like Progress Singapore Party, it's really about bringing genuine progress. Mm-hmm. And to make progress, I think for a start, where I would like to look at is to really have open and authentic communications amongst ourselves and amongst the public, especially the women that we're reaching out to through right. Women's Wing. Um, and I would like to be able to explore different facets of the issues that women are facing. And of course, there's already a lot of good organizations like Aware, SEWO, um, and even a lot of the women politicians, they are articulating a lot of thoughts and visions and ideas about women leadership. Uh, equality, inclusivity, but, and of course, the, all the concerns about uh, workplace discrimination and sexual harassment and all those very important issues which have surfaced. But beyond that, I think there's two pockets of um, pain and wounds and um, injustices that needs to be explored. Mm. And that's why I feel that by having this dedicated platform, we are better able to have those conversations. Okay. Yeah. So, and I think it's with um, a collection of those sharings and ideas that we can really push forward the boundaries and know exactly which are the markers we, we need to test and what are the policies we can try and translate to our two NCMPs. And, and how, um, if you don't mind me following up on that, like what, what are some of the ways you want to, to turn that into a concrete practice? You know, for example, um, to, you know, pull a historical example, right? David Marshall, when he came in as, as the first chief minister, said mm-hmm. uh, the party is too aloof from the people. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is, and especially the government rather, is too aloof from people, is he invented the Meet the People sessions, which mm. be- have become so ingrained in Singapore. It's, you know, there's no like constitutional requirement for them, but they're still done by everyone because the expectation is there that it must be done. And it's one of the greatest things that Marshall did to ensure that MPs have to go and meet their constituents every week and sit in front of them and listen to their, their needs. How would you, um, you know, in your leadership role, foster uh, these open conversations that are diverse and inclusive, especially among women? Um, I mean, of course, technology is probably something that didn't exist. I mean, not in the way that we know it during David Marsh's time. And I think a lot of the social media platforms has allowed for a lot more interactive engagements. And I think, especially from the last G, we see that a lot more women, a lot more minorities are ready to step up to engage with us. Um, So without spilling too much beans for the Women's Wing launch, but we do have a very good representation of women from 
um, one of our speakers who was from the team of the Singapore Women's Everest Climbers. Mm -hmm. um, to, I mean, of course, Hazel herself as a right. new women politician. And um, Pretty Please, who's also very active oh, on the awesome. social media. So yes. we, we are getting, well, I wouldn't call them everyday Singaporeans because not everyday Singaporeans would go climb Everest. But, you know, mm. but we have people who are more ready to step forward, I think, more than a decade ago, yeah. who's ready to say that, look, you're a political party, an alternative political party, but I'm ready to... Um, share my voice with you and be able to use that voice to amplify to a greater audience on your behalf. And and that for me is, is empowering and I, I actually appreciate a lot of that trust that is given to us, especially as a new chapter to bring forward that discussion. Great. Yeah. Okay, so this, this podcast should be airing on the 29th of January. So mm -hmm. uh, as people listen to this, it'll be tomorrow that your launch is happening. And uh, we'll come back to you've you've mentioned a lot of things which I'd like to pick up on, mm -hmm. um, but let's let's go with you, Terence, sure. because um, uh, okay. same question for you. You know, what right. is um, the the PSP's vision, and um, how would you, and, and what part of that I suppose resonates the most with you, or how would you, what would you want to be part of the vision? Right. Okay. Well, the PSP's vision is pretty much all about. Um, having more equality for the people, right? So equal rights, um, equal employment, um, you know, all, all, all that sort of things. Because what, what's our core value? Essentially, we're talking about justice, democracy, uh, equality, uh, progress and peace, which is what you can find in the Singapore Pledge. Um, but yeah, if, if we want to summarize uh, what we stand for, beyond just a compassionate society, we want to look at a society where um, it's not just led based on meritocracy because I think there's quite a lot of uh, you know discussions nowadays about how you know the cons of meritocracy but we, we want to be able to give everybody an equal footing right because if, if say you're born in a much wealthier family you are exposed to more opportunities that might allow you to be in a different standing in life that's not cronyism that, that is still under meritocracy actually because now you have more tuition for example uh, you are your parents are able to get more resources for you so you are able to get to a better school find a better job and while that is meritocratic but however is it an equal footing for people it, it really is not so I, I think the PSP is really trying to push for that and of course, in terms of uh, gender inequality, right, and, and, and that's where we're looking at the women's wing, uh, the glass ceiling for women and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd like to revisit uh, one of the questions which you uh, asked Wendy just now, which is how is the party moving away from Doc, right? Uh, because Doc ultimately is the face of the party. Um, I think that would definitely take time because, you know, if you ask anybody out there in, in the public, they are only going to say it's Tanjung Pong's party, right? Yeah. For now. However, I think slowly but surely, the, the, this focus is trying to sh shift away. Of course, now that uh, we have Man Wai and Hazel in Parliament, um, it's slowly you know, putting the whole focus and spotlight on them. And I think um, within the party itself, internally, uh, you know, we have uh, so many different kinds of people, right? We, we have such a 
good diversity. And, and that actually uh, leads to many different kinds of leaders and need not necessarily be the head of women's wing, head of communications, head of whatever other departments that we have, but leaders in their own right. And these are people who, you know, they might have joined the party, like both of us, initially for Dr. Tan. However, you know, they'll be able to develop themselves, um, you know, through time, right? And, and through the exposure with uh, the kind of work that we're doing, be it on the ground and policy or wherever. And that is where I, I believe they are able to, uh, in a way, step out of their comfort zone. And, you know, the, these are the people you really will see probably in the next mm. election or maybe even before that, right, where, where the, uh, the, the party puts a spotlight on them uh, for the public. So, yeah, I, I do believe that as time passes, hopefully, uh, you know, sooner rather than later, um, we are able to be a party where it's not just dungeon box party, like how Workers' Party used to be, you know, resting upon the shoulders of Lao Tia Kiang, but now, right, you not only have Pritam, Hazel, um, you know, Gerald Giam. Oh, Sylvia. <laughs> not, not, not Hazel. <laughs> Sylvia, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, and, Do not outsource our and, talent. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and they, they have 10 parliamentarians now, right, which, which yeah. is so awesome. So, um, I, I do believe that that is definitely um, achievable for PSP, whether or not it can be done in the next GE, the following GE or whatnot. Um, it's, it's all a matter of time where you know, people mature and they are able to take the mantle on, on themselves. I, if I can pick up on this theme of equality, which sure. you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad you picked up on, uh, and which is up here behind us on the, the oh, backdrop. Right. Right, yeah, the I, I should just look behind for the yeah. core values <laughs> just now. <laughs> um, how do you ensure equality of opportunity within the party itself as a first step? Right? Because uh, it's, it's very um, difficult to create equality of opportunity of in society sure. as a whole. Uh, and, you know, it's well documented. Singapore is very unequal uh, and the meritocracy is limited to a very small socioeconomic class. You know, Michael sure. Barr's book, um, The Ruling Elite of Singapore, demonstrated how our ruling elite overwhelmingly come from one socioeconomic, very narrow sliver. They're, uh, all, they all go to the same schools, have the same background, right? know the same people and they rise up together. But because they compete so fiercely with each other, they think it's meritocracy, when they, but they don't realize that they've been born into the opportunity and that the other 95% or 99% of Singapore don't even realize, uh, you know, never have that chance to even enter the, meritocrat the meritocratic race. So within your party, how do you ensure that people have equality of opportunity, either through things you've already done or things you'd like to do, especially in your leadership position? Sure. Well, it's hard for me to, to talk on behalf of the senior leadership and, and PSP because, for example, in the recent general elections, um, Doc was very um, cognizant of this fact. So he, he was uh, doing his utmost best to put forward um, candidates that are of, you know, if I could use a word of different status from the incumbent, mm -hmm. so they might not have a fancy degree, they might not even have a degree, they, they, they might not even, um, you know, be, be your standard metric of success, yet Doc still fielded them, and, and I think that's his idea of putting forth the best people. So, in terms of equality, if you want to talk about uh, running in, in the general elections, 
yes, we want to provide equal opportunity. However, you you will not be um, just opening it to anybody and everybody. You that there, there still has to be a certain baseline where, okay, this person he he might not have certain opportunities in life. He might not uh, have come from the best schools. However, he has a good heart, mm-hmm. and 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 if dog can see that, then that is the metric which he uses to to push forward this person for candidacy, right? And in terms of the youth wing, which I, I can speak about. I think, um, let's use uh, one of our uh, working groups uh, discussion that we had, I think, uh, just a few months ago. So, it's very random how people uh, are sorted in, in the working groups, right? We, we just let them kind of just roam around and just sit at random tables. And each group comes up with a certain idea and it doesn't matter who you are um, we, we pick the best idea so and wh- which who whosoever idea gets picked you run that event right so we, we want to provide an opportunity it, it doesn't matter who you are as long as the idea is good I will pick it and I will let you run it I will let you organize it and you will be able to get gain this exposure you'll be able to gain this uh, if you want to call it a leadership experience to um, re- really be able to, to see how uh, you know, events are run on the ground um, at least just within the PSP youth wing itself yeah so oh, okay yeah so you sort of had an open democratic contest of ideas uh, and this was members of the youth wing or yeah you? okay correct. and uh, and any member of the youth wing could come in and yeah. wow correct. okay and then how were the uh, who who was the judge of those? Which ideas you know were the best? Who yeah. judged? Um, we only did that about a week later. So yeah. um, we we have a committee within the the youth wing itself, which um, um, you know we had a meeting and, and and we discussed about all the different ideas, and then of course we just voted on it, right? right. So it, okay. it's it's not like the head of youth wing get two votes or something. No, it's it's all equal. So um, yeah, it's I I hope that is democracy in its mm. most basic form. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know these were open discussions yeah. in which people could see who was saying what and be and and people who spoke up could have to be accountable for what they said, right? Yeah. So yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's um you know a a, a very classic form of associationalism and I think uh, right. associational democracy. So, um, but if I can pick on pick up on just one thing though, when you said in the last election, you had candidates from a wide variety of backgrounds. Yeah. Don't pick them. Is that going to be true going forward? Is it still going to be Doc picking people, right, and exercising his prerogative as founder and leader and moral center of the party? Um, or will you be moving towards a more democratic way of selecting your candidates, such as through internal elections or grassroots elections, you know, like how parties in um, sure. other democracies do? Yeah, well, um, the... The candidates are, of course, this election, Doc as a secretary general and he as a person with more political experience than pretty much everybody else combined. Um, he is the one who should have the final say. However, moving forward, um, you know, when the new CEC is voted in or whichever CEC is in uh, appointment at the time of the next general elections, they are actually the ones who will be, um, in a way, choosing who the candidates are. But how do the CEC get elected? The CEC is elected by the cadership, mm-hmm. right? And the cadership is, um, so, so, so there's sort of a, a voting process where 
we elect the highest decision-making body within the party, which is the Central Exe Executive Committee, and, the, and this CEC would then choose uh, the candidates. And of course now, uh, as you know, the, the new CEC, they would naturally have a bit more political experience, right, having run in the previous elections, or, or maybe they haven't run before, but they will have some sort of, sort of other experience. For example, we have people um, who are former PAP members and cadres over there, and well, th th these are all the different experiences that they bring into even this current batch of CEC itself. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do believe that the next batch of people who will be fielded, uh, it won't just be based on dog's gut feel. Of course, that would play a certain role, I suppose, but um, it, it has to come from a certain consensus as well that, you know, if, say, for example, there's 15 people in the CEC, for example, if dog feels that this person is good, but the other 14 feels that, man, th th this person is a, you know, he it's not candidate material, then I'm, I'm very sure that this person will not be fielded. Yeah. Um, if I can, you know, pick up on the, the cadreship, though, that is one of the things which is criticised about the PAP and other parties, that it is something which, it's a way of, of uh, blocking democracy, which is what Lee Kuan Yew, you know, designed it and To Chin Chai designed it for, to prevent people who wouldn't vote for the things they wanted from becoming full voting members of the party. Sure. And when I interviewed Charles Yeo, you know, for all the problems that uh, the Reform Party has and mm -hmm. Charles Yeo, I mean, we disagreed on a lot of things. But he made the point that the Reform Party is the only party which has open democratic elections for its leadership, whereas all the other parties have a cadre system, which means it's not democratic. How would you respond? Would either of you like to respond to that? Um, I think that... In a way, because of the nature of our setup, that we are very receptive to, um, like I said, everyday Singaporeans in joining us. And I think while it's limited to uh, a set of cardias, as Terence has mentioned, but I think the observation of who gets to become cardia, uh, it's based on feedback and observations of how these different members have contributed over time. Um, so I think it's not maybe as open the sense of getting the thousand of members to vote, but at the same time, I believe it's it's brought over as a system to ensure that whoever has that right of vote um, is actually making a much more informed choice uh, as opposed to someone who may be moved by, say, the, the speeches who are given on the day of election. So someone who has been with the party, served in certain capacities, and has that ability to make a more informed decision on who can make the best CC representation. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the intention is coming from. So um, if, if we can focus a bit on, on you, Wendy, for a while, uh, because this podcast is going out, of course, the day before uh, the launch of the Women's Wing, right? So could you tell us a bit about the Women's Wing and how it relates to the party as, as a whole? You know, and this is something I'm going to ask both of you because I'm very curious. What exactly is a women's wing? What does it do? Does it, you know, forward policies to the CEC? Does it put up candidates? Does it, uh, you know, represent or get to a, a say on certain issues which are deemed women's relevant issues? So what is a women's wing in the Progress Singapore Party? And uh, what does it do? How does it function? You know, and how does it relate to the party as a whole? 
So I think after the last election, um, there's probably a realization that more women are participating politically as candidates. And definitely more women voters that we see on the ground are asking questions that concern them. So with that realization, I think that's when they decided to form specific chapters like the Women's Wing and the Youth Wing to target outreach to this specific sector. And I think statistically, it would make sense because women are 50% of the population. So if you can win their hearts, mm -hmm. then that's uh, half your voters across the board. And how we relate the chapter with the party as a whole is very general speaking, most of, or rather all our women members are part of the women's wing. Um, but it's a voluntary choice whether they want to serve more within the women's wing uh, in various subcommittees and different capacities, or would they choose to be more um, active with the ground outreach like in different GRCs and SMCs that we have contested in. So structurally, there is that division. Right. Uh, within Women's Wing, we have tried to offer support in terms of policy discussions. So as I mentioned earlier, we do plan to be um, diverse in our outreach on dialogues mm -hmm. to women of different class, minority groups, background, uh, different levels of political and activist um, engagement to get as much views and representations from the ground and use that as a funnel to feedback to our policymakers, our NCMPs, to see how they can uh, present the best questions that, that concern the ground. Um, so some of them could involve issues about um, education for the children, could involve issues about um, foreign spouses, as has come up recently. Right. Um, and, and so that's one part of the engagement we're looking at. The other is by direct participation. And I think randomly just by a survey of some of our women members, you know, we've, we've tested them about their, their familiarity and their concerns about issues on women leadership, mm -hmm. workplace harassment, discrimination. And I think um, the reality is that because a lot of these concerns probably reach out to a very small minority, if you are looking at leadership, it's probably that top 5% or so who, who have that aspirational desire, mm -hmm. or people who face a certain level of discri discrimination or harassment. Um, it's, it's probably widespread, but maybe for a vast majority, that's not their immediate concern, but it's issues of education, healthcare for their parents, um, CPF, and it's the bread and butter that really relates to them. And so I think that's where we want to do really dedicated dialogues to see how we can better refine policies uh, to address some of these concerns and needs. Yeah. So can I just clarify before we get into some of these issues, uh, mm -hmm. institutionally, uh, the head of the women's wing, the ex-officio in the CEC, or are you elected um, separately as Women's Wing and CEC member, what, what is the relationship of uh, the, the head of the Women's Wing of the CEC? For now, I'm an ordinary member. And oh, okay. so the it's and there is an informal structure called the Restructuring Committee. So okay. it's part of that new setup after the election where there are certain chapters and functional group heads uh, where we do have a monthly meeting to kind of update each other on the progress of our programs. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, as to a formalized CEC position, that really depends on the next election that's coming up. The next internal CEC mm -hmm. election. 
Oh, okay. So uh, the, has, it's been proposed that the women's wing leader is automatically part of the CEC, or is there a specific proposal there? I'm not hearing any news yet, Terrence. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think it, they keep us in suspense and make us work hard. And, right. <laughs> and, and so if we perform, then maybe there might be a Well, it, it, okay. it, it doesn't really matter, actually, <laughs> yeah, because um, we're, we're all just you know, contributing in our own right, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not you're on the CEC. You you are still doing the same kind of work, isn't it? Like uh, you you are still championing women's causes, mm. you are still championing youth causes. Right, but leadership matters, right? Is is any member of the CEC right now a woman? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hazel is it or who? Hazel has stepped uh, away to dedicate her time to her NCMP role. Okay. Um, but there's Chica, there's Peggy. Okay. Yeah, who are in the CEC leadership position. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Um, and about yourself and your role, did you uh, have to run for this role? Were you elected by the women in the party? Or were you appointed? I'm appointed. Okay. Yeah. So again, this comes <laughs> back to the question, right? Is that, is that democratic? I see that curiosity over your face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're a political party which wants democracy, so it's an inevitable question. If you don't mind me asking, like, shouldn't the head of the women's wing be elected by the women? Um, okay, so I think we are in a unique position because firstly, it's a new party. Second, okay. I think that decision to restructure came very quickly after the election. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the women's wing and youth wing, but also a few other functional groups that were quickly formed. Okay, okay. And again, I think from my experience at the party, a lot of it's really based on participation, the way you have maybe conducted yourselves amongst different groups of members and volunteers and based on feedback. Mm. And with all that information, the leadership has probably um, certain views who could probably kickstart mm. that formation. And it's with a very clear understanding as well that we are here to hand over our position to the next immediate person who will be democratically elected. So we are more or less here to just form the, the initial committees to make sure that there's a running group uh, right. straight after election so that we can channel all the excitement and energy um, right. and that willingness to participate readily into a group so that that can kick off very quickly and perhaps in one or two years' time, then I definitely foresee a democratic election for the women's wing position. Okay, that, that's fair enough. I mean, you, yeah. you're starting up, you are, yes. you know, as, um, it's important. Yeah, it's important to remember you are a very new party mm. and uh, it's very common for organisations to create, uh, I think they're called pro-tem committees yes. to start things up. So that's your position. Would you be interested then in running it for this position again in a few years? I, mean, I suppose it's a bit early to ask, but uh, um, I'm very interested in, I guess your agenda for the next two years? What do you want to achieve as head of the women's wing? What, uh, what are your priorities while in office? Apart, of course, from like creating a strong institution, mm -hmm. but are there specific policies you're interested in? Well, um, I think for policy implementation, it doesn't need for me to be in a leadership position. And as I said from the beginning, politics was never the aspiration for me. Um, but because of this opportunity where I was given that chance to serve in a political capacity and I felt that because I have ideas and um, thoughts that have been in my head for a number of years that I thought I could contribute to a greater public that probably best explain why I'm doing what I'm currently doing. 
So I'm not here to make sure that I, I would stay in this position for the next two or three years. Um, but if you're asking me about policies that I would like to see through um, that get put forward in Parliament and hopefully get implemented, yeah. I would um, say that you know, income inequality and um, I think some of our articulations about minimal living wage is something that's very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. And I think the progress of a society to me is always measured by how our weakest are doing, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a community. And especially where we have the resources to help and support, we should be paying particular attention to see how those resources can be better distributed. Yeah. Okay, can I ask um, then about some specific specific issues that you've raised? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the first one you mentioned where the, the beginning used to volunteer with AWARE, and of, AWARE, of course, has had a recent survey which showed uh, a lot of women experience uh, sexual harassment in, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, using that as an example, right, how would you in your role or the Progress Singapore Party want to try and uh, address that issue or you know, bring attention to that issue to try and create change around it? Well, um, I think sexual harassment actually comes a lot from a, a rethink of the management and the organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first place, I think there needs to be formalised a policy or at least a regulation of a place of neutrality for outreach for women. Um, so in one of the organizations I've been with previously, they have a position that's called an ombudsman. Right. And so within the organization, it's understood that if you have, um, episodes of distress, harassment, um, unfair treatment from anyone in the work environment, you could reach out to an ombudsman to share. And it's on the understanding of confidentiality. And I think that's important for someone who is feeling a lot of distress at work, and especially where there's economic pressure perhaps to keep that job. Mm. Uh, there needs to be a neutral channel, a neutral outlet for that victim to, to sound out his or her distress. Right. And I think harassment can, in my mind, happen to both um, men and women. Right. Especially if you are at the same time advocating for seniority in women leadership and I think harassment to some extent it's it's translation of power right and whether you can misuse that power um, to achieve certain advantages or gains for that moment um, in in yeah in, in causing someone distress and I so I think for for beginning at a very practical level we, we should be advocating for that place of neutrality and that person um, like a privacy data officer, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when you can legislatively implement for such a position yeah. and enforce that organizations of certain capacity should have someone like that, then I think it's not just uh, sexual harassment and discrimination, but a lot of the unfair workplace practices mm-hmm. uh, can probably be visited within the organization itself. And that person hopefully also have the best understanding of the workflow, the management processes, to see what are some of the um, solutions that can be optimized for that situation. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, the the problem is, of course, you know, and this is always the problem. Like interviewing, 
anyone in the in the opposition in Singapore, mm. you don't actually have the power to do any of that to legislatively say companies must have an ombudsman or to create uh, a nationwide office for whistleblowing um, or to force people to have a, you know a companies rather have a privacy uh, officer. Um, only the the incumbent government can do that, but not only do they not do that, they refuse to ratify international treaties, the you know relevant international labor organization documents about uh, ending harassment, uh, and our privacy laws are a total mess because um, on the one hand, for private companies, you have a privacy law that is actually very good, very clear. On the other hand, that law does not apply at all to the government and government agencies, which are, have had horrendous leaks. And of course, mm. you know, um, just two and a half weeks before the recording of this podcast, we have this big scandal about Trace Together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the question then becomes, right, well, is there something, how does the opposition um, fight for something like this? How do you actually make a difference on a, when the policy, when the problem is so systemic, right? As opposed to say, um, there are individuals who are poor and have fallen through the cracks and you raise attention to them. We can do that. But that's one by one. Well, you have a systemic issue here where um, there is, I think AWARE's study said two in five people experience harassment at work. How do you deal with that when you're the opposition and you have no power? So I think uh, coming back to your main concern, which is mm-hmm. being opposition and not having power. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I think power comes in many different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing is that we shouldn't see ourselves as an isolated organization. Right. Right. Like Progressing Singapore Party or even Workers' Party. and. It's, it's about the people and building a movement. And I think once you have a movement, especially a movement of awareness, then that is something that's greater and more powerful in, a, in and of itself. So if we can relate another example like um, mental health, right. um, which probably five years ago was less discussed. But over time, as more forums are raised, more discussions are raised, more questions are put in parliament, um, and you have healthcare professionals like we have Dr. Ang uh, talking about mental distancing recently and youths themselves are stepping up to say that, you know, um, cyberbullying and issues like that, are, they're, they're important concerns. And I think it's when you have that openness and that awareness for discussion that um, the power truly comes from the people who are directly concerned or they see that their neighbours, their colleagues, their friends, their family are getting harassed or um, discriminated in some point and they want to speak about it. Mm. So I think when people start becoming aware that it's not just dependent on an election every five years or about a political party making a stand or that political party not having sufficient representation in parliament and the power is more widely distributed across Singaporeans at large, then I think that's when we can make true reforms. You know, I mean, even through yourselves, your social media outreach, um, the social workers on the ground, and I mean, the everyday Singaporeans who are trying to make a difference and sharing on their own social media channels, those are very, very powerful um, weapons as well. Cool, thanks. That's a very interesting answer. You're, you, you know, building a broader movement. Mm. And um, would you be willing to talk about like some of the 
partnerships that you'd like to build? Um, because in, in Singapore, of course, uh, there's also a problem with, you know, historically the PAP hates uh, movements because it undermines their power and they've sought very much to atomize all the different social organizations, civil society, NGOs, and then also to co-opt them by funding them, right? Mm. And uh, making that renewed funding dependent on them playing along with the government. So with an issue like this, I think the PAP itself, of course, is also saying, yes, we're against harassment. So maybe it's not as controversial, but still, how would you overcome then a fear of working with the PSP as an opposition party and you know, saying, oh, I, I, I want to be non-partisan, I want to be apolitical, I don't want to get involved with, with a political party, you know, which is, of course, it's, 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 the premise of that is wrong because these are deeply political issues, right? Harassment, mental health, you know, um, gender rights. These are all very political issues. But how do you build a movement in an environment where people have been not only trained to be scared of you, but are financially and in other ways incentivized not to work with you? So I think that um, for a start, when I talk about a movement, and I relate a little bit of that to the Hong Kong experience, mm -hmm. right? Um, the movement comes from people. Mm -hmm. And when you have people who are ready to break out and you can't control individual thoughts and ideas and sharing, I think that's when you get less um, despondent over the fact that there are many organized groups that are co-opted as part of the system. And that's why I think for us, it's not so much that we need to specifically work with specific organizations or NGOs, but through a collective outreach and showing that there are just individuals who are stepping up, people who are not in the system or they might be part of the system, but they themselves are prepared to be neutral enough to just say, um, I'm prepared to have, have conversation with you. I'm prepared to have conversation with PAP Women's Wing or the um, Workers' Party. And we're beginning to see more and more individuals like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when people start realizing that there are individuals like that, um, and I think as Terence mentioned, when he was inspired by Nicosia, um, and you know, even for us, when we we're having younger and more diverse representations through the last general election, I like what AOC has once shared about courage, right? And it takes one person to be the one standing up to be the target board. And it takes a lot of courage in the first time that right. you do it. But as more and more people are standing up, then it takes less and less courage because it becomes normal. And once you normalize the experience, then you, that's when you take away the fear as well. And so for us, um, quite apart from the ongoing ground engagement, I think one of the process which is important for me, whether or not I remain uh, as a woman's wing chair or the party even in the long term, it's really to normalize this experience that by myself, um, as an average Singaporean working adult, family having um, gone through certain experiences in life, I'm prepared to be here and there's nothing to be afraid of. And I think that's an important stand to make. Cool. That's great. Is there a particular issue that you personally, you'd like to take a stand on? Is there something, you know, that um, you'd, you're going to offer leadership on any particular issue really close to your heart? Um, so, like I said, the idea of 
so recently we we uh, looked at a model yeah um, called the sustainable livelihood framework okay and I found that model interesting because it does offer a framework from moving someone from a survival mode mm-hmm. into an aspirational mode which mm-hmm. is a sustainable livelihood and you know a lot of times a lot of the conversation I feel right now it's limited to the initial cycle of survival and um, even policies like minimal living wage, mm. retraining, it's, it's a lot about survival. But right. I think the current generation, maybe in the next five years, in the next 10 years, more and more women, more and more Singaporeans are really looking to the aspirational side of things. Right. 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 Um, and they realize that inequalities, it's important to address and, and there are spe- specific policies that we're advocating. But at the same time, for a large number of Singaporeans who are in the middle class, the PMAPs, um, what they want for themselves and their children are bigger questions of, you know, environmental sustainability, their livelihood sustainability. Um, apart from going to my work from 8 o'clock to 8 p.m., right? Hmm. What, what is it that I'm working towards? Yeah. What is that aspirational model? And what is that sustainability in this working model, I mean, even we are exploring co-working arrangements, is that sustainable? Right. And, and in that model, I, I was interested to explore this Japanese concept of ikigai. Mm-hmm. So recently, there's some discussions I see online about finding your ikigai. And Can you explain that to our audience? I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Okay, I'm not sure if that traditionally translates to a political policy, but it's really coming to a point... Um, in the life and I think through different facades of policies we hope to bring it to a point where the average Singaporean feels that the work that they're going to is where they find passion and meaning right that okay. it's sustainable for them to maintain their family um, and that it's also sustainable from a larger viewpoint of the environment the community um, the cultural beliefs the aspirations okay. so I think it takes a more holistic form of okay. what livelihood should look like. Okay. Are, are yeah. you familiar with what's enough.sg? The, the research by those uh, social scientists about minimum sustainable incomes for Singaporeans? Mm. That's also been very interesting. And I think by the time this podcast comes out, we're going to have released an article on New Narrative. Uh, check it out, everyone, newnarrative.com, about how much hawker food should cost if hawkers are going to have a sustainable income rather than a minimum living standard, but rather an income which allows them to actually participate fully in society mm. and be, you know, and have the dignity and respect due to them as sure. human beings. So I think that's very much, um, you know, uh, also part of uh, um, what what you're trying, what you're what you're getting at. I think that's 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 a really good aspiration. Mm-hmm. Can I can I ask you uh, one more like tough policy question? Is that is that okay? <laughs> You already asked a lot of tough policy <laughs> questions, but I'll try. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier foreign spouses, and this is actually something that is, of course, uh, as long-time viewers of this podcast know, really important to me because mm-hmm. my wife is Filipino. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, she's a PR, she's applied for citizenship, not gotten it, even though she has a Singaporean son. Mm-hmm. Why that is, of course, it's a total black box. Right, And so today we live in a Singapore where one in three marriages are between a Singaporean and a foreigner. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one in, let me check my notes here, one in five citizen births 
uh, to such a couple where one where you have a citizen and a, and a foreigner, and it's women who are disproportionately represented among low-income uh, spouses disadvantaged by this. But the government has been very steadfast in not saying that there is, you know, not even an automatic right to be here if you're married to a Singapore uh, Singaporean, um, but not, uh, you know, refusing to be even transparent about the criteria and what. Uh, uh, how how you can become Singaporean? Instead, you just apply, and it's yes or no. You know, so n- not even a, a PR, right? A long term visitor pass or permit. Mm. Um, is it pass or permit? Well, the the just the right to stay here for a long period of time, mm-hmm. uh, not even enjoying the rights of being a PR. So uh, you know, there's the, the the all the subsidized healthcare, for example, education for your children, right? Um, just the right to stay here is not even automatically given if you're married to a Singaporean. So here we have an intersection of two very complicated things, which is um, women and immigration, which is another very hot-button issue. Mm -hmm. So what's the PSP's position on on this? I can't say I am speaking on this on behalf of the party because I think it's a new discussion point that came up. Um, But maybe I'm just sharing a little bit more based on my ground observations. Mm -hmm. So during the election period, we visited one particular family, um, Indian Singaporean with a wife who was from India. And if I recall, they have two children of university age. Um, So the wife has been here for the last 20 over years. And what was particularly striking about that visit was that she was just... Um, lying in bed, the husband was speaking to us and and she had chronic illnesses and yeah. because of that the hospitalization care is priced at um, non-local pricing so mm-hmm. for a foreign spouse and, and that's really harsh because yeah. there's only one source of income from the husband so um, that, that prompted me to really ask, you know, like why are we being so harsh on a person who has proven her loyalty in so many more ways, right? By giving birth to Singaporean children, raising them here. And I think very shortly, their children will also be going out to society to contribute. So at a very basic level, it just seems really unfair. And... Um, just reading online articles, you know, when when couples get married and they want to plan to have children, I think the certainty is crucial for them to know how long their spouse will be here. That's mm. one aspect of it. Um, and and I, I think it's it's really just back to having that equal access of opportunities for them to know that when they are here, they are being welcomed and they can have that stability and that frame of mind to really look at Singapore as a home long-term. And to some extent, it's hypocrisy, right? Because we're always talking about being an open society, we like to bring in foreign talents. Mm. But somehow, we are so ready to accept people who are here and may have barely proven themselves. But for a spouse who stayed on here for a number of years, contributed in so many ways, and sometimes may not be directly economical in, in that aspect, but... I think that's when we need to start really having conversations about seeing people beyond our economic contributions. Yeah. 
And the other aspect I was um, sharing with my husband is I was just talking to him about this issue last night is the aspect of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine a foreign spouse being here and having children and having a spouse who is violent, um, but if she's to file for a divorce, then she would face a real possibility that her long-term visit pass would get revoked. Right. Um, whether or not she can bring the children with her, whether it's to go back to countries like Vietnam or Philippines or China, where the children are not born into those countries and suddenly they have to potentially relocate with their mom or face the other possibility with staying with an abusive father. Mm. I think those are really hard choices for a mother to make. And perhaps in the best interest of her children, she may then feel that it's better for her to stay in that abusive marriage. Mm. Yeah, because the certainty of her getting any form of PR citizenship after divorce is definitely not guaranteed. Mm. Yeah, so I think because of all these um, grey areas, it forces people into large areas of uncertainty that they can't plan for their family life long term or they get entrapped in particular situations that they are not be able to best make the best decisions either for themselves or their children. Can I ask you personally for your stance as opposed to, you know, let's make clear, you're not representing the party. The mm -hmm. party doesn't yet have a clear stance on this, but would you be in favour, for example, of a clear, transparent, um, objective criteria for um, foreign spouses to a long-term visitor pass and then permanent residency and then citizenship? Yeah, for certain, I, I think that would help a lot, as I mentioned earlier. So, um, giving specific timeframes, mm -hmm. having very specific criteria to know what are the factors that would make it easier or faster for them to get on certain tracks. Right, so there could be a few tracks um, with different timeframes depending on the background of these foreign spouses. And... Um, if you're looking more at family planning, maybe with more children, they could look at getting their PRs and even citizenship faster. Mm. So there could be different aspects of how we can collectively make this work and not see them as a liability, which I think is really unfair when you yeah. consider how open and how ready we are to take in foreign talents. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, the, you know, the, this is, this is uh, it's also very, I think there's also a, there's a gender component, right? Because, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's a, a lot of women are low income, other low income spouses we're talking about. But I think there's also a racial component mm -hmm. where there's a complicated uh, sort of, you know, three dimensional uh, aim of keeping Singapore's racial mix at certain levels. Mm -hmm. And so if your foreign spouse is not of certain races, then they're far less likely to get citizenship, but the government, the PAP government, won't come out and say that. Yes. So they won't admit to certain things, right? And so I think that is also, you know, something we need to consider. Uh, and so it goes very deep into um, the, the, the issue of race in Singapore, mm -hmm. but also what is citizenship in Singapore? Who gets citizenship? What are the, you know, rights and responsibilities? All these, it's a kind of black box that we have, and it's very hard to understand <laughs> why the ministries decide certain things when all of this is not transparent. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so that's all for part one of this interview. Thank you to both Terence and Wendy for joining us. And do tune in in a few weeks' time when we air part two of this interview. 
And as always, if you've enjoyed this uh, uh, and if you found it useful and helpful, please do join New Narrative as a member. We're funded entirely by memberships and we uh, definitely need your support. So you can join New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Thank you very much and do stay tuned. Uh, part two will be coming soon. Where you think that you're gonna go? This is Utopia